IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be talking about Linkin Park in the era of new metal and whether that music has had any influence on indie rock. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, Steve, uh, I'm feeling great, and I'll tell you why. So just before we really get into the meat of this episode, I just got to clarify some you know official policies of this podcast. You see, IndieCast gets its rock news first and foremost from the New York Times, and exactly a month ago today... They wrote an article called Guitars Are Back, Baby, um, talking about how in the, how in the pandemic uh, people are buying guitars. They got more time on their hands. Um, yes. I've been, to the, I've been to Guitar Center um, a few times, and like, they're cleaned out for the most part. Now, whether that's like, due to an economic downturn or the fact that like, people just cannot stop buying Gretsch hollow body guitars because they think rockabilly is coming back, I don't know. But what we're looking at no less than a month later after the New York Times declared guitars are back, number one album in the country is a pop punk record made by a rapper. That's Machine Gun Kelly's Tickets to My Downfall. <laughs> now, I don't know if this this promises newfound relevancy for IndieCast or whether like Travis Barker is gonna be like kind of a Rick Rubin figure like going forward for like rappers who want to like go pop punk, but. I don't know. These are these are exciting times. I mean, have you heard this album yet? Yeah. yeah by the <laughs> way, I I'm, I'm very impressed that you found a way to shoehorn Machine Gun Kelly uh, into the podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is like the shoehorn part of of our episode, <laughs> like where you kind of insert something that we're we probably wouldn't talk about otherwise. It's like we're gonna take a shot at idols. Now we're gonna talk about Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah, I heard the album. Um, you know, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I feel like records like this, um, like dumb guy rock records, essentially, like they, they get crapped on in the moment. They're very, it's like the lowest hanging fruit if you want to make fun of it. And then like 20 years later, people are writing retrospective pieces about how this album was actually brilliant. And I, in a way that's related to our episode today, because I feel like Linkin Park hybrid theory was in a way dismissed in its time on those same grounds. And I'm not saying that Machine Gun Kelly is the new Linkin Park, but uh, I've been around is long he, enough to he, know. Is he not, though? Because when you think about the way he bridges the gap between, like, he was a rapper, like, kind of an Eminem, like, oh, we're going to sign the next Eminem. Um, and you think about, like, Warp Tour 1999, which had Eminem and, like, Black Eyed Peas on there prior to Fergie when they were just, like, talking about the five elements and spinning on their heads. And Blink-182, it's... I mean, it kind of, maybe it is the new Link. He's like a one-guy Linkin Park. See, you can't make this case yet for like another 10 years. <laughs> okay. We've got to wait 10 years, at least wait, or wait for the five-year retrospective okay. before we start calling him the next Linkin Park. But yeah, just saying that, you know, I tend to, I think this is true for both of us. We have a weakness probably for this kind of uh, lowest common denominator rock, especially now because it just seems like there's not a lot of it. So yeah. like when something like this bubbles up, even if we're, yeah, you know, we're not going to call this album a masterpiece, but it is. I am appreciative on some level that Machine Gun Kelly is out there 
making songs. Isn't there a song called Bloody Valentine? On yeah. This record? I think that record, that song jumped out at me as being like, oh, this is kind of okay. I mean, all the songs are about like two minutes long. Yeah. I think there's like there's like 21 songs in 50 minutes. Yeah. that, is, that um, That's like a pop punk double album, man. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I mean, I guess this is the most I've listened to a Machine Gun Kelly There you record. go. So, Wait, so it has that going for it. Yeah, he's like a guy who would other like you would only hear him like sometimes on I don't know popular rock like the kind of rap songs that get played on like K Rock or whatever. He would like jump on the end of I don't know like a Troy like a Troy Lane song or something like that and just kind of spice it up a bit. But now, I mean, he played Tommy Lee I think in the Dirt movie. Um, you know, the pivot to rock. I mean, there is a lane for it uh, if you look at him post Malone and yeah, I I, I mean. You think about like the Warp Tour kind of nostalgia, or just what mo- like the most popular version of emo nights became, where it was just like a bunch of talent agency assistants and popular kids like listening to, I don't know, like Blink One Eighty Two or scene music. I think, and you, and I mean, it's it's a big stretch to include Eddie Van Halen in this lineage, but <laughs> in a way that they were kind of uh, dissed even as like dumb guy rock back in the day, and now. When, you know, with the sad passing of Eddie Van Halen, people can just talk about the brilliance, not the fact that, like, it was kind of intentionally dopey or, you know, very 80s in that way. Um, I just think that there is a lane for, for lack of a better term, kind of silly, like, reactionary pop, like, pop guitar music. But it can only be appreciated by people like people who write about music for a living, like at least ten years after the fact. So, I mean, I think the difference between like Machine Gun Kelly and Eddie Van Halen. I mean, there's like there's not many. many there's not many differences, but <laughs> but like I would say Eddie Van Halen was a genius yeah, who yeah. also had a lack of pretension and uh-huh. wanted to make music for everybody. So he was a smart guy that made dumb music in a way in a very intelligent way whereas i think machine gun kelly is probably just a dumb guy making dumb guy music which is you know i guess it's maybe a a shorter distance from you know getting to the end result in there i mean am i stretching too much by because like when i was listening to that record it also made me think of like little peep and like juice world well yeah that's that's absolutely like that too that is absolutely the, the future that was promised when i would go to those uh you know emo night la is the ones that would like tour the country because uh, what are like the two major drivers of youth listening habits, which is like snotty punk rock, like pop punk, if you will, and hip hop. And, you know, those two meld, melded in Juice World and Lil Peep. And um, I think Machine Gun Kelly is maybe not like on the same continuum, but it's you could see why people might like that. Uh, like if Lil Peep or Juice World were alive today, they their albums would be number one just like that, just by mere existing. So we I don't think we've said the title of the record yet. It's called <laughs> Tickets to My Downfall. I, I I'm I'm shocked that we re- that we've gotten this much material out of the Machine Gun Kelly record. I thought I mean, we were, were going to get all, three episodes out of it at the very least. I mean, we're kind of pivoting almost to declaring this the most important rock record of the year. I mean, I feel like we're on the verge of saying that. And maybe we will say that in a subsequent episode. Yeah. That's part of the magic of, of IndieCast. You know, who <laughs> who knows what incredible takes we're going to be sharing uh, at some point. But, I mean, this actually is, though, a pretty good pivot to talking about Lincoln Park Hybrid Theory, mm-hmm. uh, which the, it's the 20th anniversary later this month. It came out on October 24th, 2000. I've already seen a bunch of pieces about it. Um, already, I think there was a piece in Billboard this week, 
as well as uh, I think Vulture mm-hmm. did a piece interviewing um, members of the band, uh, talking about the significance of the record. Um, this album, though, I mean, just reading a little bit about the background, I think I again had forgotten a little bit about just how huge this album really is. I mean, it comes out again in October of 2000. It spawns four singles, One Step Closer, In the End, Crawling, and Paper Cut. Uh, The biggest hit of those is In the End, which peaks at number two on the Billboard singles charts. And that's the Hot 100, by the way, not the rock chart or the alternative chart. I mean, this album spawned huge pop radio hits. Goes on to sell 27 million copies worldwide. Uh, the biggest debut record since Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. It's also the biggest selling album of the 21st century. So it has sold more than any Taylor Swift album, any Adele album, any Beyonce record. Um, you know, and I think that's partly a product of its time. I mean, this is like, you know, the fall of Saigon era of CDs, <laughs> essentially, where, you know, this was like... I think like the last year really that you had like mega selling CDs mm-hmm. or mega selling records and and it's going to start to really go down after this. Um but I I know like I've had this album on my mind cuz I ended up writing about it a bit in my Kid A book just com- in just stores now. It. It's in stores now, thank <laughs> you. Uh paralleling it a bit with, with with Kid A because obviously those albums both came out in the same month, October 2000, and I think Kid A it had this uh, you know, rhetoric to it that it was a post-rock record. You know, Tom York talked about you know sort of pushing beyond guitars and creating this new sort of music in the 21st century. And then Lincoln Park they put out their record. It doesn't have the same pretensions to it, but in many ways, it has more impact culturally in the same kind of way that Kid A was trying to be. It was rock music pushing beyond guitars, looking ahead to the 21st century, um, and just looking at the success this album had and that Lincoln Park had on the radio, you know, into the aughts, I think a case could be made that Lincoln Park changed rock music in a more profound way than Kid A did, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe because they weren't a 20th century rock band the way Radiohead was. Radiohead had to sort of make the mental exercise to, to go beyond guitars because their roots were in, you know, Bowie and U2 and Talking Heads, the classic rock continuum, whereas Linkin Park didn't come from the classic rock continuum. They were coming from essentially metal and and hip-hop, music that maybe originated in the late 80s at the earliest. Um, So sort of a fascinating comparison there. I'm just curious, like, what are your memories of of Hybrid Theory, Linkin Park, and is anything that I just said, does that make any sense to you? It absolutely makes sense to me. And uh, I think for people of our age, it can seem like, uh, you know, Radiohead and also you mentioned the Strokes uh, as being part of the new rock revolution. We're playing like a different game than Linkin Park. But my insight to this album comes from a time where I worked at a, it's not exactly a college radio station, but it was a alt-rock radio station in a college town like at the University of Virginia, like WTJU was the one where you would hear stories about like David Berman and Stephen Malkmus when they were there. But we were the ones who there was some component of like, you know, college rock, do what you feel fundraisers. But for the most part, between 2000, I, I was there like late 2000 to 2002. And we played 
mainstream rock uh, all the time. And so I would hear, this is how you remind me, every single, every single set. And that's why I love that song. Um, <laughs> but it gave me a lot of exposure to uh, what was popular on rock radio at the time, which are things like uh, Stained and White Stripes and Strokes and Linkin Park. And I remember that they would always have these little descriptive stickers on the burned CDs in the library. And in the front of Linkin Park, this was maybe late uh, 2000, like you said in the book, where it had it was you know, it was released, but it hadn't really started moving units yet. And it's like, this one could break big. And um, when I first heard uh, One Step Closer, that was the first single, I did not like it. Like, to me, this was... Like the worst of wor- the worst of both worlds from TRL. It's it, you know it had like the kind of new metal angst that I couldn't really relate to, but they looked like pop music. Like right. uh, it's been remarked, Chester Bennington kind of looked like a bad boy version of Justin Timberlake. And oh yeah, it, absolutely. It, it seemed like almost parodic to me, and I, I ignored it for a bit. But then as the other singles start to come out, for like in the end. And crawling, that's where you start to hear more of their influences of like Depeche Mode or The Cure. And the rapping was downplayed and the screaming was downplayed a bit. And, you know, just by nature of it being a, you know, a pop culture phenomenon, I I gave it a listen. And I mean, Paper Cut, the first song in the record, that is one of the great album openers of like the pop rock era. It it is just everything I could want out of out of Linkin Park. And um, I mean... A lot of a lot of the retrospectives right now are kind of looking back on hybrid theory more as like a phenomenon rather than a work of art um, in the way that we might for uh, Kid A or The Strokes. But um, as far as far as like what a pop record is supposed to do, it has the singles and like there are other songs like the other songs on this record exist. Uh, I mean, even <laughs> right. even when you look at like the like Killers Hot Fuss, like one of the most uh, notoriously front loaded albums of recent times, you know, Lincoln uh, Hybrid Theory is sort of in the same way in the sense that there are the singles, and then like I don't know if there's this h- hardcore Lincoln Park faction that really stands for like Cure for the Itch or By Myself. Uh, there, the singles are spread out more equally. Uh, throughout the record, which I guess makes more of a case that it's meant to be listened as a whole. But um, I, I don't recall at the time Linkin Park being seen as a long... I, I think one of the, the through lines for this episode and really for a lot of the things we discuss is that um, it wasn't seen... It, w- it wasn't taken seriously as a pop phenomenon the way that Eminem or Britney Spears or... Uh, even the strokes were like things that were concurrently happening. And I think that happens all the time with popular rock music, like the music, like rock guitar music that is like actually really popular, uh, never gets granted the same leeway as like actual pop. And this is why we can only really talk about like Linkin Park you know, 20 years after the fact, the same way that we'll probably have like our first real 21 pilots conversation uh, yeah. in 10 years. That's a really interesting point, and I think that's absolutely true. And I think it has to do with this thing with music critics who I think there's a common arc with a lot of music critics where I think a lot of them get into sort of indie music or punk music at a younger age 
in their development and then they expand from there and then maybe they become interested in pop music or r&b or jazz or whatever the case may be but like they still retain like the punk indie uh standard for rock music so whereas they might be more open-minded hearing something poppy that is maybe like a little tasteless or or dumb but like they're still kind of coming at it from like a tourist standpoint so they're going to be more open-minded with that but if it's a rock band they're going to revert to like the the canon really yeah. comparing it to that and i think that's why a lot of rock bands like you say in this ilk tend to not be very well regarded in the moment and i have to say too just to echo what you said earlier that i didn't like lincoln park at all when they first came out <laughs> i remember hearing that first song uh one step closer and yeah like you thinking that this was just like um like a compendium of like new metal cliches essentially that you know that they were just taking they were like a like a better looking uh you know limp biscuit essentially um and over time, you know, and with the benefit of hindsight, I, I've revisited a lot of Linkin Park stuff, and I've really come to appreciate the pop sense of, like, what they're doing. Because, like, when I was listening to Hybrid Theory, again, you know, getting ready for this episode, it really made me question, like, whether this should even be called a new metal band. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I think Hybrid Theory is, like, the heaviest record that they made. Um but like if you listen to like their subsequent records, I mean, they really turn down the heavy riffing guitars and really just become more of like an alt rock band. And then even as you get further in, into the aughts, they're even taking guitars out of the mix. And, you know, in, in my book, I I posit that their 2010 album, which is their fourth record, A Thousand Sons, is sort <laughs> of like their Kid A record because that was like them making the electronic curveball that a lot of fans uh, didn't like. Uh, but I don't know because, like, when I think about new metal, to me, the, the definitive new metal band is Corn. Like, I think I, I and I tend to compare any new metal band to them just because I feel like they are the best example of taking like hard rock music and rap and creating something that is definitively different from any kind of rock music that existed before. And I'll say again, like, like with Korn, that's another example of a band that I could not stand <laughs> at the time. And I've really come to appreciate, I think that they are, whether you like them or not, I mean, they are a genuinely, they're like maybe the most genuinely experimental, like massively popular rock band of the 90s. Like mm. in terms of like a band that just, you know, severed any connection to like the classic rock continuum, you know, like just compare them to like Pearl Jam or Nirvana, you know, like from earlier in the 90s, like how those bands were in many ways sort of tipping their cap to classic rock in a lot of ways. Korn has, they don't sound anything like Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or any of those bands. They're, they're totally this, I think, unique out, you know, this, this unique product of the 90s. And I don't know, I thought of this analogy earlier this morning i don't know if this is off base or not but is it fair to say that like corn would be like the radiohead of new metal and like <laughs> lincoln park is like the cold play because uh, it, de- it depends i mean because most people would like say like it, it, like genuinely say that deftones are the radiohead for of new metal because like they are like massively influenced by radiohead but are they like really a new metal band though like uh, is there like a hip-hop influence in, in deftones all right like, so uh, it, here you you've walked on my territory and i would say <laughs> if you listen to early early deftones like for example like 
there's a song on Korn's second record, Life is Peachy, where they cover Ice Cube's Wicked. Um, like, that's probably one of the better songs if, if they're going to cover an Ice Cube song. Probably better that one. Uh, because, like, in, if you watch the original Wicked video, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are in there. It's just, like, Ice Cube and Flea, like, just smashing up, like, an abandoned A-frame. But, yeah, Chino Moreno's rapping on that one. Um, so, yeah, it, early on, there is a rap influence on Deftones. It clearly went away, even if they started having, like, a turntablist in the band. It was more, like, about texture rather than, like, you know... Uh, two turntables and a microphone, like, or four, like, the way that uh, Linkin Park integrated hip-hop, which, you know, will be a thing that I kind of discuss later on. But as far as, like, what new metal is, I think we're getting into, like, the definitions of it. Uh, you bring up one of my favorite quotes uh, of, like, the past 20 years, maybe even further back, where uh, Fieldy, who's the bassist for Korn, he, Chuck Klosterman, I believe, did a... I don't know if it was just corner. He was like assessing new metal as a whole, but Fieldy gives a quote to him that says, this the, is in Fargo rock city. It's at the end of Fargo rock. Okay. City, this, this quote. And Fieldy says to him to paraphrase, like the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, the, these bands mean nothing to us. Our history starts with the red hot chili peppers and uh, faith no more. And like you were saying, um, this is music that uh, clearly scanned as rock it's two guitarists a bassist the drummer and a vocalist in corn and and at the same time it completely is severed from the rolling stone canon which made it a lot easier to accept bands like pearl jam and nirvana because even if nirvana was born of indie rock it was still a lineage that people really understood like you listen you think about the way that like the red chili peppers or the cure or early depeche mode were treated uh Go find the early reviews of Cure albums from Rolling Stone. They are a fascinating lot. Um, Oh, yeah. Or like Robert Crisco review. (laughs) I I remember reading his review of Disintegration. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, he gave like a C-. It's too early for me to get this fucking mad about. (laughs) But, um, yeah, but but with with Korn, it's it's so interesting that, like, when you think about, like, the way new metal is framed, like, people forget, like, why it was called, like, new... Yeah, the the U and the umlaut is kind of joking about it, but this stuff ran concurrent to what was otherwise described as like the new rock revolution. Things like uh, the Strokes, the White Stripes, Hives, Vines, etc., etc., etc. And new metal uh, was something that just appealed to a younger audience who had no interest whatsoever in that same old like blues rock canon. I remember at the time. Um, I was subscribed to Guitar World magazine, and uh, in the mid '90s, you would get you know maybe like a Green Day song transcribed, but also it'd be like Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, maybe like some Dream Theater. They throw in a Pantera song, maybe just to appeal to the metalheads. And then when Corn comes out, like you can't play that song on a normal guitar. You need a seven string first off, and a whole bunch of effects pedals. And yeah, you listen to that first Corn album. Um, them and Ross Robinson, they didn't really know what each other were doing. Like you hear Corn describe the recording, like they were all like jacked up on meth, like recording in <laughs> Malibu. Like they're a bunch of Bakersfield skaters, and just neither party having any idea what they're doing. And, just rednecks, really. Yeah, I mean, they were pretty rednecky, I think. Yeah, they very much so. And I think that talks to a point about like why new metal is kind of 
disregarded in a larger sense. Um, there's kind of an underlying but pretty blatant classism to it because when you look at where these bands are from, I mean, uh, it's it's so funny to think of like the Strokes or Interpol, like they're going to bring back the real New York, even though they're like kids who went to NYU or like scions of like fashion uh, agency uh, owners. But like Corn was from Bakersfield. Lincoln Park, I think we're from Riverside, California, maybe like just like Slipknot's from Iowa. Yeah, Slipknot's from Iowa. Limp Bizkit's from Jacksonville. Deftones are from Sacramento. Saliva's from Memphis. Um, a lot of these bands are from like pretty unclamorous parts of the country. And for uh, you, 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 I have to bring up Ben Fold's Five Rock in the Suburbs, which is the song where he makes fun of uh, new metal. You know, it's kind of like white boy suburban music. Like this coming from Ben Fold's of all people. <laughs> but that's uh, got to be an episode of IndieCast at some point. Ben just Folds? talking about rock. Just talking about rock in the suburbs. We'll just do a deep dive into <laughs> rock in the suburbs by Ben Fold's. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I mean, the people have spoken, but yeah, you, the first Corn album. You listen to what they do with guitars, and it's. Um, it has more to me to do with like, you know, something like Sonic Youth than, um, any, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whatever. Like the guitars sound like nothing on earth. And that album comes out, I think it came out in 1994, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the year, I mean, that's the year that Kurt Cobain dies. It's the year that Pearl Jam is really at their peak with Vitology and Soundgarden is putting out Super Unknown. So it's like alt rock is really cresting Mm -hmm. at that point. And then Korn comes out with this record. That again, I think to me, like alt rock was part of that lineage, and it was, I mean, it was very deliberate. You have Pearl Jam, you know, touring with Neil Young, you have Nirvana covering David Bowie on their unplugged record, Allison Chains like hired Ozzy Osbourne's bass player, like yeah. after their original bass player left. I mean, there were very obvious connections that you could make to older bands with the grunge bands, and then, yeah, I think Korn, they just come along and there's no connection at all to the past and you know that comparison i made before where you know i said lincoln park is coldplay i say that again as someone who likes coldplay that's like not a not oh yeah we are we are not dissing coldplay on this show believe me (laughs) i think to me what that means is that lincoln park i mean like corn never sold 27 million records yeah i think that it's clear why they didn't because they were more abrasive and i think it was and, and they were still like hugely popular. They were a very successful band, but like they weren't the kind of band that, you know, if you had an aversion to new metal, you were not going to buy a corn record. Whereas I think with Lincoln Park, you know, the secret to their success was that you didn't have to like new metal to like Lincoln Park. Ah. That they had a pop sense to them that, you know, you know, we talk about One Step Closer being the uh, the first single, but like in the end is like their huge hit. Yeah. And that is just a power ballad, essentially. Oh, yeah. And it's and it's where Chester Bennington is singing more than like screaming. Yeah. You know, and th- there's a reason why that was a hit. And I think you see that as they move through the aughts that they're going to be less and less metal as they go on uh, into the decade. And I think... You know, again, like if we're looking at them as a touchstone now for a generation, which I think more people are talking about Lincoln Park in that way. I feel like you know some of that is because the people who grew up with Lincoln Park are now in positions of influence. They they write their their music critics themselves or their cultural critics. So 
you know, it, it's part of that. Again, it's the cyclical nature of how these things work. Things that appeal to kids are dissed at the time. And then the people who loved it grow up and then they write retrospective pieces about how this thing was underrated that happens yeah. all the time um but also i mean it seems like after chester bennington died too yeah. that there was maybe more consideration of like how this band was important to like a lot of people yeah i think that you know it's it's unfortunate that it takes this to you know to 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 imbue their past work with more gravity but the thing that people would always say about new metal whether it be Lincoln Park or Corn or Limp Biscuit, is that oh, this is you know what do these people have to be angry about? Um, there was just a sense that this was like fake anger or that you know it, it, it was baseless. And I think what this music did for a lot of uh, people who are like eleven or thirteen years old, or just people who are young and angry and have no idea what to you know, how to process what they're feeling. A song like In the End or Break Stuff or Corn's Blind, uh, you know, those really speak to people who just don't really have the, you know, the tools to uh, describe like this anger that they're experiencing, which is new. And I think that, you know, when Chester Bennington died, uh, it, people were kind of able to be more open to Linkin Park as like a gateway band. Um, you know, they might not be Radiohead as far as like what they do to push the uh, envelope of what rock music could be. But Linkin Park were like super gracious about like the doors they opened. I mean, uh, Mike Shinoda is like a real backpacker. Like the funny thing about that, like the reason like they're kind of seen as like more um, clean cut than Corn is, you know, Corn love Ice Cube, uh, Dr. Dre. Like they tried to make their music sound like Bomb Squad. But Linkin Park was like straight up backpacker stuff. Like if you ever heard like Fort Minor records, like he talks about like, you know, staying true to the five elements and KRS-One. Um, and they <laughs> right. have that kind of like youth pastor sort of energy to it. Like you said in the book, they they never party. Corn, on the other hand, like they all became born again Christians because they just went so hard uh, yeah. during their imperial phase. Which, I mean, and some of that might have just been what they talked about in the media, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but yeah, certainly like, yeah, when you read Lincoln Park interviews from like the early aughts, they're very upfront about saying, you know, we don't, we don't drink a lot. We don't do drugs. We don't even swear on our yeah. records. We don't like want to swear. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. Very different from corn who like front loaded their yeah. decadence, you know, they were, it was up front and center well, with they, them. They front loaded the decadence and also like the trauma of it all. I mean, you listen to a song like right. Daddy at the end of Corn's uh, first record and he is like crying in the booth thinking about like the abuse he suffered as a kid. And I think that with, with Lincoln Park, I think he said well, like Ross Robinson like tricked him into doing that too. Yeah. I feel like he like, like subsequently felt like he had regrets about that yeah. happening. But yeah, I mean, but that's that in Lincoln Park. It just like the, this is like, it's really raw stuff. Um, you know, they're young people who are just and I like ex exploring their trauma or just like the feelings of being trapped in the suburbs. Like that's its own kind of pain. And uh, new metal really spoke to that, but it, it was kind of just misunderstood as like, you know, just like whining about not getting allowance. And I mean, right? And, yeah, and, and, yeah. May, and maybe and maybe what's happened. When especially we see like you know artists struggling with mental illness is like really take that at face value, you know. Yeah, that's definitely something that's changed a lot in the last twenty years. Like where I don't think people now would be as quick to describe someone 
you know, expressing their feelings about like a traumatic childhood or something as complaint rock as yeah. you know, that's how this was classified back then. Or um, I'm trying to remember there was some Elvis Costello quote where it was like, like, oops, I wet myself rock, <laughs> something like that. You know, just this, this idea of sort of belittling people for talking about their, their angst in, yeah. in music. That's something that people are more sensitive about now, but you know, talking about, new metal just sonically and this is i guess pivoting a little bit to like the larger conversation about whether new metal has impacted you know contemporary indie you know radiohead and kid a at the time like when that album came out it was described by some people as being a post-rock record and post-rock that's not something people i don't feel like i hear that term used all that much now i mean it was used a lot i think in the late 90s and early aughts but it was basically this idea of like bands that were looking outside the the traditional rock canon for influences whether it be in electronic music whether it be in jazz uh whether it be in classical music you know or or like you know tropicalia any kind of other outside influence from rock and certainly that was true of radiohead with kid a but you know talking about lincoln park you know, and them being classified as new metal and whether that's an accurate term for them. I mean, are they a post-rock band? I mean, I feel like in some way they are a band that looks like a band, looks like a rock band, played some form of rock music. But, you know, I feel like the, the legacy of this band, maybe on a generation, and maybe how it's affected contemporary indie rock, is that they're just part of this generation of musicians that disregarded genre boundaries and were able to integrate music from different places in a much more organic way in a way that was maybe harder for people like of generation x you know <laughs> generation where i think like with radiohead for instance it had to be a much more deliberate entree into electronic music where they had to sort of make it the narrative of the album whereas with lincoln park they could do that and it was unspoken you know it's like because this is just where we come from and it's not even a conceptual sort of gambit with this album it's like we like metal we like hip-hop we're going to combine it together and it's just something that we like it, it, it we're not even thinking of it as like a big pivot or some revolutionary thing um i mean to me that would be the influence on on contemporary indie rock maybe not like a tangible sonic influence but just that philosophical idea that i think really started at that time that in which you can see now everywhere that genres don't really matter it only matters what sounds good so let's just take from wherever we want to make our record well i think people do use the term post-rock now but like when we when we do it's like a very specific thing it means like a band with eight words in their name and their promo photo is them standing outside the forest. And that's what post-rock means now. But if we're talking about like post-rock meaning after like rock music, I think that Linkin Park certainly uh, attests to that. Um, and even when you think about the way new metal evolved, like Korn was making EDM records in the two th in 2012, or no, they were like making like dubstep type music, and Linkin Park also was doing pop as well. And uh, it's, I mean, you could probably make a connection between Linkin Park and say Imagine Dragons. Um, oh yeah, totally. Just in terms of like you know, guitars are there and it presents as a band, and it's like four people on stage wearing guitars or keyboards like the 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 visuals are similar but it's not like the strokes or what have you it's not like 
something that necessarily connects to uh, Beatles, Zeppelin. Um, I mean, maybe it does in a way, but not in the sense of like four guys and they're playing guitars and there's no synthesizers. And when we look at like the way these bands have influenced indie rock, I don't think that you can look at too many sonic touchstones where you say, oh yeah, this band I listen to definitely influenced by Korn. I mean, Deftones is a band that is just, a, just a massive influence on heavy rock bands, but not uh, the early stuff. It's more if you start at White Pony, uh, where they started to really be more overt in their influ in their um, you know Cocteau Twins or like shoegaze influences, but the, the vocals being kind of gauzy or whatever. Like there is almost I can't think of too many like popular heavy indie rock bands that aren't influenced by Deftones, but. Def, that, that's always seen as like, oh, well, Deftones is the good new metal band. Uh, same you could say with like System of a Down. Um, but with Linkin Park and Korn, I think that there was a time where you would get like really avant-garde artists like Grimes and 10 Tricks Point never saying, yeah, we're going to make our new metal albums. And like you'd get like maybe a glimpse of it. But I think it's more from the approach of thinking post-genre. It's like all things are on the table. If like we want to put a seven-string guitar on there or we want to like rap like that's totally cool it's it, it's just maybe a a prodding to view new metal differently rather than saying like we're gonna do this thing where our bass sounds like a dragging muffler like the way fieldy did. Right. like you know fieldy was like i don't want my bass to sound like a dude playing bass guitar and i think when we we i when we look at like 2020 and like where new metal is i mean you could think of like very very um pronounced and overt influences like Touche Amore getting Ross Robinson to produce their new record uh, because, you know, Jeremy Bohm, the lead singer said, when I watched the the blind video, uh, like my brain fell out of my fucking head. Uh, same with like Slipknot's first album. Like, by the way, go watch the people equal shit video. It's like it, it's, if you have any doubts about like the Slipknot live experience, go watch that video. It's like a live recording. But I think for the most part, they're th they're thinking about well we like the albums that Ross made with At the Drive In or Blood Brothers or uh, Glassjaw or th but you know bands that also weren't necessarily seen as credible back in the day it's more I think people might just say yeah new metal I'm okay I don't I may not listen to it but conceptually I'm cool with it because yeah. you know it's pop it's it's different. I see at the very least how they were trying to push the conversation forward. And you know what? If you're not 15 at the time, perhaps it was hard to really grasp, you know, like what it meant. Like, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't even know if I really even liked corn that much, but I bought life is peachy uh, when I was 16 because like you listen to twist. It's like, okay, this is like the nar what, what can I listen to in my car that like just pisses people off? And like says, I am like I am not like y'all, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The again, like that, it's like a, it's a philosophical influence. It's a conceptual influence. It's really about sticking it to a previous generation that put this music down and saying, no, we're not gonna have these arbitrary boundaries between like what's considered you know, acceptable influences and in what's considered unacceptable. Um, and, and that's really been the story of, 
you know, I guess artistic discourse in music uh, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years of, you know, tearing down every wall that used to be put up. Uh, and new metal seems like it's among the last to get that treatment, but it's finally come for new metal. And, you know, we are at a point now, like where a record like Hybrid Theory, I think, is being looked at as like a landmark record uh, that is worthy of retrospectives. And, and I think it ought to be. I think it deserves that. I Obviously, from a commercial standpoint, um, again, it's the biggest selling record of the last 20 years. Um, and also, I again, I think you can make a case for the impact that that record had. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's still being felt today. Yeah, over under on if it gets like, if the 20th anniversary reissue gets reviewed by Pitchfork, what's your over under on the score it gets? I'm not reviewing it, by the way. So um, I would say like a 7.6. I'm going 7.0. We'll see. Okay. We, 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 we will check back. Uh, we, we will wait. We will put some sort of wager on it where I don't know. I have to like listen to like an entire Grateful Dead bootleg if you win and then you have Ooh, I, I, I mean I, 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 would, I, would, I would I would I would pleasurable I would I would certainly listen to that maybe it would be like something more like uh I'm I'm not I'm not gonna I'm gonna watch my words here because we're I, gonna do we're, we're gonna do the six hour big cypress fish yeah. set from New Year's Eve 99 baby all right yeah. stay tuned I'll, and I and I have to live tweet the entire experience so book it We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I recommend something that we are into this week. Ian, you go first. So, uh, I did... By the way, did can we say whether or not, like, tickets to my downfall is Machine Gun Kelly's Kid A? <laughs> we were talking last week about, like, whether, like what's the new Kid A? It's uh, like, maybe this is it, but... Um, yeah, we're bringing I, back Machine Gun Kelly at the end. I love the I love the bookend yeah. shoehorn. Yeah, of and Machine the con- Gun Kelly. Yeah, um, and I tried listening to A Thousand Suns and like for a little bit, and I'm like, man, I wish this kind of sounded more experimental. Like, I don't. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how like Linkin Park's fan base like totally turned on him because to me, like I listen to it, it's like aside from a few interludes, it sounds like a Linkin Park record or it sounds like a Fort Minor yeah. album. But as far as you know, bringing things back to you know, indie cast, um, like indie cast core. I think there's a guy that, you know, you, I think you had mentioned in some of your previous articles, guy, guy called Field Medic. He yes. is a kind of a folk artist that uh, is on Run for Cover, which is a label that uh, has quite a few bands that are influenced by Deftones. Um, but this, this guy is interesting to me because I oftentimes think about like what a nightmare my life would be like if I were 25 right now. Uh, just, I mean, I, like, look at, at the time in 2005 or whatever. Uh, you know, I was in law school. I was in a very happy long-term relationship, and still, I was a terror on the internet. You know, just to the extent it was available. And um, I think about like what it might be like if. You know, my life was like broadcast in the same way. And I say that in the most loving way in how that's what I think about when I listen to this new field medic connection collection called uh, Floral Prince. Uh, to kind of give you an idea of who field medic is, he is, well, I can't really do justice to his haircut. You're just going to have to look it up yourself. But he plays like very open tuned folk songs, like oftentimes very solo 
lo-fi, almost in the same vein as like, you know, the tallest man on earth. Um, this kind of Dylan-esque sort of thing. But he does so in a way that's almost kind of not hip-hop in the sense that, you know, there are beats or he's rapping, but this very uh, immediate, like, just talk about what's going on in my life, even if it is kind of embarrassing or, like, overly revealing uh, in a way. And to me, like, the best of Field Medic sounds like a combination of Bright Eyes, First Day of My Life, but if the lyrics were Lover, I Don't Have to Love. Um, <laughs> where it's, it's not, like, you'll hear him, like, play this, like, really pretty open-tune, finger-picking thing, and he starts talking about, like, how he's much better at sex since he got sober. Um, and this collection is, it's not an album per se. He just puts out, like, collections of new music that are either just kind of one-offs or improvisations or collections of you know, one-off singles or, and I, I think when we look at the overall picture of what he does, he, he operates in this very interesting niche of being, I don't want to say like, you know, the new Dylan, because that's, you know, obviously over the top, but he's this kind of folk troubadour, but very much like Zoomer in the, like even beyond like what you might consider like a Phoebe Bridgers or something like that. Like, cause she, in a way, is very much more palatable and can scale up. Field Medic is someone who I can guarantee, if I were like 25 years old, I'd probably have some of his lyrics tattooed on me. It just has more of that kind of like dirt bag, like living with five roommates in a two-room uh, apartment, uh, drinking like at three o'clock in the afternoon, but like writing a really sweet song about it vibe. And I don't know, it, it, it it's nostalgic to me, but just thank God. God, I don't have to be 25 years old right now. Like p- putting things on the internet where I talk about how much like a field medic song completely like spoke to my life. I mean <laughs> that as like the highest compliment. Don't get me wrong. You know, yeah. And you mentioned Dylan with him and I know uh, I've interviewed him and he's oh. talked about how much of a Bob Dylan fan he is. And But like unlike a lot of young singer-songwriters who you know, fall under the spell of, of Dylan or like those classic singer-songwriters. He's not openly imitating them as far as like what their subject matter is. Like he's not writing songs in the matter of like old Dylan, like about, you know, hop in the train or, you know. <laughs> or just like kind of psychedelic <laughs> visions. I mean, like I think you listen yeah, to right. someone like, like Kevin Morby, for example, like lyrically, like he kind of, he, not just the vocals, but like the the subject matter. It's a little more broad and, uh, more surrealistic and abstract. Like, Field Medic talks, like, he's going to talk about, like, you know exactly what all his songs are about. Well, yeah, and and just, like, his sensibility is very yeah. 2020. It's very much of his generation. So it's, just, it's I think, a really cool hybrid of, like, you know, a classic folk tradition, but also making it feel very contemporary. And I think he's, like, one of the best examples I've heard of that, you know, in recent years. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I I second that recommendation for Field Medic. Uh, the person, the band I'm going to be talking about, and I know Ian is also a big fan of Ooh. this band. It's called Wild Pink. Um, they put out a new single this week. It's called The Shining But Tropical. Mm. It's from a record called A Billion Little Lights. It's their third album that is going to be dropping in February. Like, February. Quite a, quite a long time from now. They're beginning the album cycle uh, now, I actually interviewed 
the uh, front man of Wild Pink, John Ross, this week. Uh, you can read that on Uprox. I guess that was like the official album launch uh, w- with that piece. But um, so I don't know. I mean, I hope that works for them. I'm a little concerned about the long album cycle. I think that can be problematic, as far, especially since I feel like you and I are the two people that write about this band the most so and i've already <laughs> written about them like four months ahead of the album release so you, you have to pick up the slack when the yeah, album drops it's, but it's, it's the symbols eat guitar trap or the right. young G, or the young jesus trap <laughs> but i you know it's you know it's speaking about indie cast core you know if you <laughs> like other bands we've talked about on the show i think you would like this band they're this uh band that's sort of like synthy vibey heartland rock um I would, I, in my story, I likened it to sort of like a cross between like Death Cab for Cutie and Lost in the Dream, the War on Drugs masterpiece, one of my favorite albums, of course, of recent years. Which, by the way, quick side note, the War on Drugs announced a live record this week called Live Drugs, which mm. comes out in November. It's excellent. I'll just leave it at that. I'll probably be talking about that in a future episode. But at any rate, going back to A Billion Little Lights, um, like I said, this is their third record. Their first two albums, I think, are great. They put us they put out a self-titled record in 2017, followed up by a record called Yoke in the Fur in 2018. Um, but this is, you know, the quintessential third record where the band decides to get really ambitious and make a lush, big screen, you know, push to the horizons type album. Um, it originally started out as this concept record about the American West. If you're just trying to get an idea of how epic this album is. Um, but eventually that concept was was set aside, and it's just a collection of songs. But again, very lush, beautiful synths. There's a lot of uh, like lovely pedal steel guitar parts on this record. There's like some fiddle. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, this is one of those bands that totally bridges our interests, Ian, because I think you can hear them, you can hear... I think they sound like an emo band in a lot of ways uh, of like the Death Cab for Cutie variety. But like when you talk to John Ross, he doesn't reference that music at all. He's very much in the dad rock camp. He always talks about, you know, old school singer songwriters like Springsteen, Petty, Jackson Brown. Um, it's funny because as some because we have a similar interest, me and John Ross, in like revisiting off-brand albums by classic rockers from like the 80s <laughs> and he always brings up something that i had forgotten about that makes me want to revisit something and when i interviewed him he talked about the rod stewart song rhythm of my heart oh from yeah 1989 this sort of like celtic sounding synth rocker <laughs> uh and he was just talking about how that song was one of like I guess the mood board songs for him as he was making this record. This again very kind of triumphant sounding, almost passe, but like really cool, you know, old school mainstream heartland rock type stuff. And I went back to that song and I'm like, oh yeah, I loved the song as a kid and I still really like it. Um but uh Yeah I, wish I would... people didn't have to wait four months for this record. I know I it's, uh... it's a great fall album. I I mean so just listen to the single, I guess. Like, the single's great. Yeah. Revisit the earlier Wild Pink records if you haven't delved into those yet. They're both awesome. Um, and mark your calendars. I think this yeah. is... It's all—it's my album of the year for 2021. It's the only album I've heard of 2021. But I still suspect it will be one of my yeah. favorites uh, I've heard, next year. I've heard, like, three or four 2021 albums. I mean, like, this would probably be my album of the year in 2020 if it came out. But, yeah, I, I with, with this, it's like in a way like weirdly optimistic to have a four month 
album lead, you know? Also, I just got, I got to say about the whole original concept, like they were, when I interviewed John back in 18, uh, they were talking about how they were going to do like a double album about the American West influenced <laughs> by the monitor. And right. this album is as good as you would expect, but it sounds nothing like the monitor. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate the vision, but I mean, yeah, this is like one of those albums that just really bridges the gap. And I think the fact they used to be on tiny engines gives them that sort of like emos uh, kind of associations. But in actuality, it's, like it's it it appeals to the very kind of mood boardy indie rock, and I say that like in a complimentary way, like Tame Impala or War on Drugs. It's it is kind of vibey, but like imagine if like the lyrics were like very substantial in a Ben Gibbard kind of way. And um, I don't know, I can't say enough good things about this record. I hope uh, people feel the same way. Because they've been a great band for a while, and now they're on like a bigger label, a bigger producer. They got uh, Alexis uh, from Shit's Creek in the video. They're doing it big. I hope that people, you know, I I hope that it's rewarded, um, you know, because for a long time they've been just really underrated. And yeah, definitely. And I and and, you know, you have two months, I guess four months, to get into those first two albums. To get into those first two albums, if you haven't already, you know you have time to to absorb those records before this one comes out, and hopefully, they become one of your favorite contemporary bands in that time. And then when a billion little lights finally drops, you can be super excited to get into it, and it'll be great. So yeah, definitely for now, listen to the single, and also listen to those first two albums if you haven't yet. They're really awesome. Yeah, and Indie the cast core to the to the extreme, and the four songs EP in 2016. Fourth of July is one of their best. Oh songs. yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, so that was Recommendation Corner, and that is our episode of IndieCast. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We will be back with more reviews and hashing out trends and all the rest next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.